<laughs> Did you guys talk about his brother being on the other team and the whole deal? Yeah, man. I, I've built a great relationship with Jason and the whole Kelsey family. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like me and Travis are so close that our families have kind of connected to be second families of each other. And, uh, man, he, puts, he put it all on the line as well. He has nothing to be ashamed of. That was a great football game against two of the best teams in the league. And uh, Yeah, he, uh, was very, um, he was very sincere and I think um, generous as he, when he spoke after the game about your team. And I assume you guys, like, do you speak to Jalen Hurts after the game? Yeah, no, it was, it was a ton of respect both ways. I mean, they played a great football game, and we played a great football game, and someone had to win at the end of the day. And so uh, there was a lot of respect going that way, and I'm sure we'll play that, that team a, a lot over the next few years. Yeah, you, yeah, you, there will be many rematches, no doubt. You know, I want to ask you about one particular play. Uh, let's ro roll that play. Right. Then. Right. So okay. take a look. Watch back here. They're in, in general. <laughs> He's eligible. He's going to block, and he's going to go out for a route. Okay. Now, a play like that, is it more embarrassing when you don't complete the pass after you oh, do yeah. the whole thing? Oh, we worked on that play for so long. <laughs> and then I knew we tried to disguise it with all that different stuff happening before the snap. And then I saw 22 point directly at the guy I was going to throw it to. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know if I like my alignment matched up on the DB. Man, the worst. What is that play called? Uh, so Wiley, who is the guy we were trying to get the ball to, is a big Pokemon collector. Uh -huh. um, and so it was a Pikachu formation and it was called Gotta Catch Em All. Nice. <laughs> well, welcome to Hope, everybody. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really enjoying being a fan of the Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, I wanted to start with that clip. Mahomes is talking about the Pikachu formation. Uh, this is the National Football League we're talking about. NFL, some people say it stands for not for long because there's an urgency, it's so competitive. You, every play, every game, every season, it all matters. And if you don't get it just right, you are not gonna have a job, at least not for long. And so here's the Chiefs playing Ring Around the Rosie in the backfield, drawing up a play to throw, try to throw a touchdown pass to a 300 pound offensive lineman in the Super Bowl. Who does that? Well, Andy Reid does it, a big red, as he's affectionately known by Chiefs fan. He's been the a Chiefs coach for 10 seasons now. Before that, he was the coach of the Eagles, the team we just beat in the Super Bowl. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, for 14 seasons, he was the coach of the Eagles. And this is not me saying, you know, Andy Reid is a perfect example of a human being for us to follow. That's not what I'm trying to say. Um, but Andy Reid, there's something about the way he coaches that can help us out as we're living a life of faith. He's known as one of the most creative play callers in the NFL. And I want to suggest that there's a connection between his creativity and his gratitude. There's a connection between his creativity and his gratitude. In the early 2000s, Michael Vick was a human highlight reel quarterbacking the Atlanta Falcons. Then he made a series of really foolish, terrible decisions and he ended up in prison served a 19-month prison sentence, and when he came out of prison, he was hoping someone would give him a second chance, and that ended up being the Philadelphia Eagles and coach Andy Reid. They signed him uh, as the third-string quarterback in 2009. Uh, through a series of events, he ends up becoming the starter in 2010, leads them to the playoffs. It resurrected Michael Vick's career, and leading up to the Super Bowl, he had this to say about Coach Reid. He believes in people. He's just a guy who cared about us as players, cared about us as men. I fell in love with him the first time I met him. Now, part of what I hope you're seeing here is this connection 
between second chances and gratitude and love. And I wonder if maybe part of the reason Coach Reed so freely gives out second chances is because of the gratitude he feels for the second chances he's received in his life. 2012 was a nightmare year for Andy Reed. Uh, about a month before the season began, one of his sons died from a drug overdose. When the season began, it did not go well. They only won four games that year. He was fired at the end of the season. Last week, we were looking at Mark chapter 6, and part of what we talked about what was going on in Jesus' life there is something that happens in, in all of our lives. These seasons we go through sometimes where everything feels out of control and overwhelming at home in, in our personal lives. And at the same time, things are feeling overwhelming and out of control in our professional life at work. And that's where Andy Reid found himself at the end of 2012. And then he got a second chance. A new team, a new organization, a new home. And again, this is not me saying follow in Andy Reid's footsteps. He's not perfect. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. We're not looking for perfection. What we're looking for are signs of growth. Signs of change, signs of transformation. And when you listen to Andy Reid talk these days, you'll hear him use words like enjoy, appreciate, fortunate. You can hear gratitude embedded in the way he goes about his business. Uh, Patrick Mahomes said this about him. Obviously, he wants to win football games and be great. But no matter where you're from, he can connect with you you can tell he cares about you as a man as much as he does as a player. What is the point I'm trying to make? The Chiefs won the Super Bowl this year. No. <laughs> Why do you run a formation like the Pikachu formation? Co Coach Reed wants to win, obviously. And it's pretty obvious he's discovered there are things that are bigger and, and more important than the outcome of a game. So as he's coaching his players, Part of what he's trying to communicate to them is the idea of relationships, connection, caring for one another, loving one another. This is all part of the winning formula. I, I, so he draws up a play like the Pikachu formation because it helps. Did you see how happy Mahomes was when he was talking about Wiley who loves collecting Pokemon? It's, it's a bonding, relational kind of reality. They also ran a play called Corndog and scored a touchdown on that. They, they're just having so much fun. Don't you want the Chiefs to win more? <laughs> wonder what you think of this idea. There's, there's a kind of winning that has nothing to do with the scoreboard. There's a kind of winning that has nothing to do with the scoreboard. And, and I'm convinced as we look at the Jesus way, he's always inviting us, extending this invitation, follow me, come my way. The Jesus way is a victorious way of living our lives that has nothing to do with keeping score. We're on the move with Mark, and we get to Mark chapter 14 today, and it's this story where Jesus is at a dinner party, and during the party, a woman walks in with a really expensive jar of perfume. She cracks it open and pours it all over Jesus, and everybody else is kind of Stunned by what's happening. Can't believe it. Upset, maybe, is even a better word. Because in part of what's upsetting them, we could have taken this really expensive jar of perfume, we could have sold it, and we could have used the money to help the poor. And Jesus is like, come on, stop criticizing her, leave her alone. What she did, Jesus says, is a good thing. She's done a good thing. And let's read together what Jesus says in verse 7. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. 
You will always have the poor among you. These are the words of Jesus. You will always have the poor among you. Why does he say that? What's his point when he says you'll always have the poor among you? Unfortunately, over the centuries, these words of Jesus have, have been used by people to justify their greed. You'll always have the poor among you. These words of Jesus have been used by churches and leaders in churches and religious institutions to justify religious greed. So just to be clear, a couple things Jesus is not saying in Mark 14. Number one, he's not saying greed is good. He's not saying there are ways for you to justify the sin of greed. In uh, a couple years ago, the Pew Research Group was looking at net worth in this country, in America. And so they were noticing a widening uh, wealth gap, is, is what it's called. So they looked at upper-income families, middle-income families, lower-income families. What's going on with the net worth of these families from 2001 to 2016? And part of what they discovered, upper-income families, net worth increased 33%. The rich got richer. Middle-income families, net worth declined by 20%. But look at lower-income families. Net worth declined during this time period by 45%. And of course, there's all sorts of factors and variables and reasons why there's a widening wealth gap in this country. And we're at church. And we would be blind and foolish if we did not acknowledge one of the reasons, one of the factors is sin, and in particular, the sin of greed. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus is not saying greed is good. The second thing Jesus is not saying in Mark 14 is you don't have to help the poor. You'll always have the poor among you. You're never going to get rid of poverty, so eat, drink, and be merry. Just do whatever you want because there's always going to be poor people. And it's not up to you to care for people who don't have enough. You do not have to be charitable. That is not what Jesus is saying here. So what is Jesus saying? Uh, Jesus is trying to broaden our perspective a little bit. He's trying to say, you know, two things can be true at the same time. What this woman did, an extravagant, lavish gesture, it's actually a good thing, and it's okay. And it's okay to give to the poor. That's a good thing, too. Both can be true. Jesus is trying to help us get out of our black and white, either-or kind of way of going through life. We've been reading through the whole Holy Bible together this year, and the Old Testament track, if you're keeping up with that, we've been in the Law of Moses the whole year. Commandments, 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 laws, rules, regulations. Part of what is helpful to me as I'm reading through all these commandments is to remind myself, here's God creating a new society. He's taken a group of over a million people from Egypt to the Promised Land, and they're creating a new community. How are we going to live together in this new community? And God's giving them sort of the boundaries. Here, here's the sandbox that you get to play in. This is what it looks like for you to live together as God's people. And part of the boundaries that God gives them includes instructions and rules on commandments on giving to the poor. We read some of this in Leviticus chapter 19. I'll start in verse 9. When you, th this is the word of the Lord to Moses, and then Moses gives it to the people. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It's the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vine. 
and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Instead, God says this in verse 10, leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Remember, this is an agrarian society. Pretty much everyone is farmers or herders, and it is subsistence farming. Nobody has like an extravagant amount. They're all just kind of struggling to get by. And God says, I'm going to embed into the day-to-day living of your life. When you're feeding your livestock, when you're taking care of your fields, when you're harvesting your crops, I want this commandment embedded into you, a reminder, it is your responsibility to take care of the poor and the foreigners living among you. God's saying the same thing way back in Leviticus that Jesus says in Mark 14. You will always have the poor among you. And since you will always have the poor among you, here's how I want you to care for them. And so God sets it, embeds it into the way the society works. Here's how you care for the poor and the foreigners living among you. God commands it. It is required. But more than a commandment, this is in a piece of our identity. This is who you are. What it means to be the people of God, it means you are charitable people. Uh, last week we had the Super Bowl food drive, and I'm hearing lots of really great stories about uh, things that happened as a result of this food drive and, and taking part in it. So thank you all uh, for the ways you participated. Last uh, Saturday we had the Hope Truck at the Fairway parking lot, and the big banners up that said Super Bowl food drive, and volunteers there collecting food. A lot of people from this community who don't come to this church were asking questions. What's the food for? Who does it go to? Why are you doing this? And then they went into the store and they came back with bags of food. A lot of the food we collected in this food drive was from people who aren't even part of this church because what you do matters and how you do it matters. And, and people who aren't part of this church are glad there's a church like Hope doing this kind of stuff in this community. This is who we are. We're charitable people. Last week we also gave the opportunity, if you wanted to, you could contribute to earthquake disaster relief and some of you did that. Some time ago, I don't remember how long ago it was exactly, I heard somebody talking about, they they were calling it the difference between giving 1.0 and giving 2.0. Difference between giving 1.0 and giving 2.0. Giving 1.0 is what we did last weekend. There's an emergency, there's a disaster, there's an immediate need, and so we're going to respond and we're going to give and we're going to care in this kind of way with a, a food drive or with giving to disaster relief. Giving 2.0 is a little bit different. Let me see if I can explain it. Uh, in 2010, our church was meeting in a middle school gymnasium. Uh, we had the truck full of all of the equipment, the TVs and projectors and speakers and all the children's ministry equipment and nursery equipment. It was all in the truck, and we had groups of people that had to set up and tear down every Sunday morning so that we could have church. And so people, we, we did that for eight years. And in 2010, uh, we were four years into it. And people were getting really excited because the church was growing. And we had the possibility in the fall of 2010 to have a giving campaign to get money to buy land. And of course, if we bought land, that would mean eventually we'd have another giving campaign uh, for money to build a building on that land. And everyone was really excited about this, except for me. I was... I mean, I knew I was going to be the one that had to stand up front, cast the vision, and ask you to give millions of dollars. And so I wanted to be sure that that was a faithful thing to do. Is it faithful to ask the congregation to give millions of dollars 
to buy land to build a building, or would it be more faithful to give that money away to help people? Obviously, you see where I landed on that one. We're in a building on the land that we bought. But part of what got me to the place where it felt like that was the faithful thing to do was this idea of giving 2.0. If giving 1.0 is giving in response to a disaster, giving 2.0 is giving in a way that we hope might prevent a disaster. Now, we're not going to be able to prevent natural disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, things like that. But aren't there other kinds of disasters that we experience in life? Just talking about the story of Andy Reid and Michael Vick, didn't they have disasters at some point in their life? We all have our own stories. Uh, disasters, personal disasters, family disasters, emotional disasters. What does it look like to give in a way that helps prevent or reduce the number of those kinds of disasters we experience in life? Uh, did you know this winter here at Hope Ankeny, over 100 people are taking a marriage course? On Sunday nights, over 100 people taking a marriage course. They come at 5.30, a lot of them do, for a meal that gets served in the room right below us. We've got uh, food service staff and volunteers who cook, prepare the meal, and serve it. People can come and eat it. There's over 30 kids in the nursery of this marriage class. And so uh, we have a nursery with staff and volunteers who care for the children so that the parents can go to this marriage class. And we have a great place for them to sit and to talk and to learn these lessons and to watch the video as uh, they strengthen their marriage, right? The, the idea of taking a marriage class isn't, if you just take the marriage class, you'll never have problems in your marriage anymore. That, the point is, can we give you some tools that when the problems inevitably show up, you'll be able to work through it in a way that maybe prevents disaster, part of what Giving 2.0 is all about. Giving 2.0, do you know what's happening in student ministry in your church? This is a picture from Wednesday, January 25th, so just about a month ago. Uh, it was student ministry prayer and worship night. Power Life is our ministry to middle school students. Ignition is our ministry to high school students. They had a prayer and worship night, so we took all the chairs out of the reservoir, and we packed it with over 300 middle school and high school students worshiping God, praising God together for about 30 minutes. When, when the worship time ended, we said, now we want to serve communion to you. And so they took communion. And then for about the next hour, they were scattered all over this church. We had sort of experiential prayer stations that had been set up. And so I want you to really think about this. On January 25th, just a little over a month ago, this church was filled with hundreds of middle school and high school students praying for their friends praying for their classmates, confessing their sin and taking it to the cross, writing down prayers, asking for us to be praying for them. Tiffany Durham is on staff in children and student ministry. Uh, she works with the prayer team quite a bit as well. She compiled all these prayers and sent them uh, so that we could be praying for them. And as I've been reading through and, and praying for the prayer requests of our middle school and high school students, a couple of things are standing out to me. Many of the prayer requests are centered on the idea of brain health, stress, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, toxic relationships. The middle school and high school students of our church are telling us they have friends who feel very hopeless most of the time. 
So we've been praying and we've been praying and we've been praying. When it was, um, well, one of the words that keeps popping up as I read through the prayer requests is the word struggle. Our students are saying, life just feels like a struggle a lot of the time. When we asked you to give so that we could expand our building, a phase two expansion, 20,000 square foot expansion, the vision we sort of cast for that was we're convinced we need more space and better space for ministry to children and students in particular. And you caught the vision and you gave. You, you saw a need, you said, I can help meet that need and I'm so glad that you gave, that you were charitable, that you were generous. I'm glad that you continue to give so that we can pay for passionate and skilled staff members in children's ministry and student ministry. Whether it's Vacation Bible School or Hope Kids or Power Life or Ignition, the idea is as we can offer programs, as we can offer ministry that's going to help children and students navigate the struggles that they all go through, as we can connect them with loving adults who are going to point them to the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ, as we do that, children and students are going to become more and more secure all the time in their identity as children of God. And the more secure we become in our identity as children of God, that's going to reduce the number of disasters we might go through. What if the ministry that we do at this church to children and students ultimately means that the suicide rate in teenagers is going to decrease instead of increase? What if it means there's going to be one fewer student who feels like they're having to go through middle school alone or high school alone or deal with their brain health challenges all alone? I'm the only one. What if they know they're part of a loving community? What if the ministry to children and students starts to decrease the number of kids who are binge drinking? or getting addicted to drugs and alcohol. Wouldn't that be a huge win for this community? This is giving 2.0. One of the things I asked you to do last week, I reintroduced you to Hope's 10 for 10 vision, 10 big dreams, 10 big goals that we have, we think God has given us for the next 10 years of ministry. And I asked you to prayerfully be reading through Hope's 10 for 10 vision and seeing where you connect with what we think God is up to in this church. How are you wired? How are you gifted? How, how do your passions connect with some of these dreams we think God is giving us? Almost everything in the 10 for 10 vision, it's connected to this idea of giving 2.0. Because the question giving 2.0 begs us to answer is the question, how do we be the church? How do we carry out the mission and vision of, of, of this place in a way that, that reduces the number of disasters we all go through in life. Giving 1.0, giving 2.0, both are needed, both are necessary, both are good. And we kind of see this idea in, in this story in Mark chapter 14. Here's how I want to, what I want to talk about as we start to wrap things up. We are charitable people. That's who we are. That's our identity. But we have to understand that being charitable, it flows from something. Being charitable is the result of the gratitude that we've experienced for the charity that God has given to us. We love because God first loved us is the way the scriptures put it. The starting place is God and what God has done. And then in gratitude for what God has done, we give. We are charitable. We love. And we see that in this story 
but not really in Mark's version of the story. Uh, Luke tells a similar story. Some scholars are convinced it's the exact same story. It shows up in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is at a dinner party and a woman comes in with a really expensive jar of perfume and she breaks it open and dumps it all over Jesus and everybody is offended, except for Jesus, by what she has done. Now Luke gives us some details that Mark doesn't give us. Luke says this woman is a woman with a reputation. She's an immoral woman. She's a sinful woman. And Luke tells us that Simon, the guy who's hosting this dinner party, is a Pharisee. He's part of the religious elite. And so this self-righteous religious leader cannot believe what this sinful woman is doing and can't believe Jesus is letting her do that. So Jesus, aware all this is happening, tells a story. It starts in verse 41. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debt. And then Jesus ends in verse 42. He says, who do you suppose loved him more than that? They just got their debt canceled. Who do you suppose has more gratitude for the canceling of their debt? And I'm guessing we would all would say, the one with the bigger debt. And I'm guessing we would say, when... When somebody forgives a monetary debt, we, we would call that a form of charitable giving. But part of what Jesus is trying to communicate in these stories in Mark 14 and in Luke chapter 7, he's trying to introduce us to a different kind of charitable giving. Jesus wants to forgive your sin. Because of your sin, you have a debt that you cannot repay. And Jesus steps in and says, I want to cancel that debt. I want to forgive you so that you can be free. Jesus wants to do that for you and me. Jesus wants to do that for Simon the Pharisee. So he says to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. And then Jesus says this in verse 47. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. We've got to be a little bit careful as we're trying to make sense of what Jesus is saying here. Because it would be easy to read through this and at first glance just kind of take it to mean Jesus is setting up an equation here. Much forgiveness equals much love. Little forgiveness equals little love. But there has to be more to the equation than this, right? Right? If this is Jesus' point, if that's all Jesus is trying to say, the logical conclusion for us to make is, church, we've got to get out there and sin more. Because the more we sin, the more we're going to need forgiveness, and more forgiveness equals more love. So get out there and start sinning, people. Hopefully you know that's not what Jesus is recommending. What, what is the difference? What is the difference between Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman? 
It's not one has a huge pile of sin and one has a little pile of sin. The difference between Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman is gratitude. How grateful are you for the grace that's been extended to you to forgive your debt, to forgive your sin? Gratitude. The Greek word for grace is charis. Hopefully when you see the word charis, you see the beginning of the English word charity. It's a connection between grace and charity. The Latin word for grace that shows up in the New Testament is uh, gratia. And hopefully when you see the word gratia, you see the beginning of the English word gratitude. There's a connection between gratitude and grace. Man, we got a lot of crying babies today. (laughs) Grace to you. Grace to you. I am grateful my kids aren't babies anymore. Uh, It's hard. People, we're praying for you. Anyway, this word at the bottom is Eucharist. It's two Greek words. Uh, The Greek word for good, and then you see embedded in here, charis, the Greek word for grace. Good grace is Eucharist. Eucharist, it's the word for thanksgiving. And it's also the word the first followers of Jesus used uh, for communion. For the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, it was the Eucharist. And and when you took part, when you came to the Lord's table, the idea was, are you overflowing with gratitude for the one who has forgiven the debt that you cannot repay? So it's not the first weekend of the month, but that's when we normally do communion. But we're going to have communion today. We're going to invite you to come to the Lord's table. We're going to take part in the Eucharist together. And a couple of things I want to say about this. Uh, Sometimes, sometimes, just an observation, sometimes when we have communion, people think, oh, this is the end of the service. I come, I get the bread, I get the wine, and then I just sneak out and go home. All kinds of reasons why someone might do that. Today, I want to really encourage you not to do that. People, we get 70 minutes a week-ish to gather together with our church family, and open up our hearts in praise and worship and gratitude to God. Don't waste a minute of it. Take advantage of every second that we have to show our gratitude to the one who has saved us. So we're going to invite you to come forward uh, for the bread and the wine of communion. You'll go back to your seat, and a couple of things you can do. uh, The worship team has put together a really great video. They're doing a couple of songs. Uh, one is a song about gratitude. One is a song about God's love. And, and so when you get back to your seat or while you're in your seat before you come forward, maybe you're like, yeah, I'm just not feeling it today. In fact, I'm not sure if I've ever really felt an overwhelming sense of gratitude for grace. It's never been, it's been good, but it's never been amazing for me. Go to God with that. Ask God to show you Why grace is amazing for you? Because it is. Just like it was for the sinful woman and just like it should have been for Simon. It should be amazing for each of us. Ask God to show you why grace is amazing for you. Maybe you are in a place of overwhelming gratitude today. Remember there's this flow. God starts it. God loves us. 
We're filled with gratitude because God loves us, and then we share that love with the world around us. Maybe when you're sitting in your seat, you're going to pull out the 10 for 10 vision. You can find it on Hope's website and just prayerfully read through that. And where do you see those connecting points? Maybe that, maybe it's just going to be a time for you to worship as this video and the singing is happening. Maybe you just want to stand up and, and open your, up your heart and worship God that way. I've got a little bit more I'm going to say, and then we're going to do a closing song. So we've got 10, 15 more minutes. And just open yourself up to the incredible gift that God has for you. Freely you have received, freely give, Jesus says. Because that's what he does. He freely goes to the cross and dies to forgive us. Because he loves us. And we remember that love when we come to the Lord's table. We remember it was the night he was betrayed, Jesus was having a meal with his closest friends. Took some bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to them and he said, take and eat. It's my body given for you. Eat this and remember me when you eat it. Later in the meal, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for all people for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this and remember me. Drink this and be filled with gratitude. Let's stand and let's pray together the prayer. Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. I want to invite the communion servers to come forward at this time. And as they're coming forward, some instructions for you. Ushers will tell you when it's time for your row to go to the aisle. I'll go down the aisle in two lines, if you remember that. Make room for two lines. And come to the station closest to you. We'll give you a wafer of bread. Uh, don't eat it right away, but dip it in the dark-colored wine or the light-colored grape juice. We also have an allergy-free station available directly in the center of the worship center, right in front of me. If you're in need of that allergy-free, gluten-free station, make your way to the center. A uh, couple of things. If you're tempted to sneak out, just ask yourself why. Why wouldn't I want to stay? And praise God with a grateful heart for the gifts of life and love and friendships and family. And then the second thing is I'm going to sneak out. <laughs> but it's just because I have to get down to the other reservoir and preach another sermon. So do not practice what I preach. <laughs> no, practice, do, do what I say, not what I do. Anyway, let's open up our hearts in gratitude to God as we worship him together. All's prepared.
I could sing these songs As I often do But every song must end But you never do So I throw up my hands Praise you again and again Cause all that I have is a hallelujah Hallelujah And I know it's not much And nothing else fit for a king Except for hearts singing hallelujah Hallelujah I've got one response I've got just one With my arms raised wide I will worship you, yeah So I throw up my hands Praise you again and again Cause all that I have is a Come on, my soul. Oh, don't you get shy on me. Lift up your soul. Cause you've got a lion inside of those loves. Get up and praise the Lord. Come on, my soul. Oh, don't you get shy on me.
together. Earlier this week, uh, Christy, who runs our children's ministry, got a thank you note uh, from a little girl who came to Vacation Bible School uh, last summer and then came to the daddy-daughter dance. Hadn't been here in between. Uh, Oh, hello. I've been here before and I really love this church. C-H-E-R-C-H. It's the best. I love Of course, my hope is that little girl, as she grows and matures, one of the things that will change is she'll realize it's not hope that she loves. It's the God that hope loves. The God that we follow, the God who first loved us. And so I hope that you will be praying for this little girl and so many other kids and students. Look at what God's done the last 15 years. What's God going to do the next 15 years in us and through us as we make room as we continue to say yes to go the way of Jesus, the way that is so much better than any other way. Let's sing this closing song together.